yeah, a different city every night. Oh, I, I swear the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. It's time to get down to business on the weekend's number one business program. Known as the king of networking, your host, Shalom Klein, has worked with thousands of entrepreneurs and created countless jobs. So, to success, let's get down to business. And indeed, we're all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship and business. We talk a lot about business here. You're on with Get Down to Business, and I'm your host, Shalom Klein. Remember, you can always download podcasts from Get Down to Business on my website at ShalomKlein.com. And while you're there, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at ShalomKlein. So it's going to be a jam-packed week of content and information you will not want to miss. So we're going to jump right in, but we're going to do something a little bit different today because uh, actually we're airing the show right in the beginning of April, which is the beginning of the second quarter of the calendar year. And it means that we're now well into 2023. And it means that we really need to look at what uh, Henry David uh, Thoreau once said, the greatest tragedy is to spend your whole life fishing only to discover that it was not fish that you were after. And that's why I've got our first guest, Paul Paul Michael White, who's learned many of life's most important lessons from his mentor, skipper Mike Bruce, who introduced him to fly fishing. We're going to talk a little bit about that and how it's made him a better and more successful person. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Shalom. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you. So I always love to get to know the person behind the microphone. I know that you have quite a few insights on personal development and frankly, fly fishing as well. Um, so let's talk about how the how, how those two worlds have collided. Well, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey. You know, I, I have a passion for nature and fly fishing. And uh, then, you know, there's the speaking and training and, and the mental health therapy. So I guess I combine it all into one and, and I uh, try to live a, a great life as best as I can. So Newfoundland Labrador is where I'm from. We're in the middle of uh, our second winter now, I think. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's pretty challenging, but it, it's a great place. You know, you learn a lot of life, life lessons. You can apply to business and to your everyday living. And uh, I, I'm very grateful to be able to do that. So hopefully your audience will get some nugget takeaways today. And there we have it. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating um, because I know uh, you go fishing, but it's it's not just for fish. It's uh, self-development. So let's let's talk about that. How, go ahead, sir. How, how have you developed sort of that that this approach of uh, of of of. of and uh, of fly fishing and how it's uh, helped you to uh, achieve uh, the best version of yourself. Well, life is stressful for all of us. And I'm part, part of my, one of my jobs, one of my several jobs, I'm a mental health counselor. So we deal with a lot of stress and, you know, since the pandemic, it, it's, it's gone. The world has gone crazy. I'll say that uh, lightly, but very stressful. So one of the ways I approach my daily life is, to recharge the batteries and fly fishing, uh, you know, in, in Newfoundland Labrador, we can only do it in the summertime, but it's a great way to get away from people, get away from stress, get away from life. And, you know, you're, you're focusing on that fly going across the water. I know a, a lot of business people who employ, um, you know, they're, they're CEOs of companies. They love coming to Newfoundland Labrador and it's just, just being in nature with all the sights and the sounds and the smells and the camaraderie, you can't go wrong. I think we need more of that. So 
if I can do that and, and fish as much as I can in the summertime to recharge the batteries, then I'm better able then to solve the business problems, solve the life problems, help somebody get through a rough day, you know, take somebody out of a suicidal a situation that, you know, it, it could go ugly, but I'm only able to do that. Yeah, if, that you know, Martin might take it yeah. That, that's powerful stuff, Paul. So, so you, you've talked quite a bit, uh, both on podcasts, as you said, you're a mental health counselor, a professional speaker, a teacher, and certainly we've already talked about being an avid fly fisher. You've written the book Fishing for Reality, um, and uh, as well as a contributor to a new book, Tales of the Great Outdoors. But you talk a lot about the importance of finding a mentor. I mentioned that in my introduction to you, where you've learned a lot of life skills. Why is that important to the entrepreneurs that might be tuning into this program? Well, you shave, you shave a lot of time off your learning. You know, if you got to do it all yourself now, I mean, my grandfather, my mentor, he was a self-taught man, you know, left, left school at age eight to go work on the schooner with his father on, on the, you know, the, the mighty North Atlantic Ocean. So I learned an awful lot from him and basically how to solve problems. The biggest one was probably relationships, you know, how to deal with people in all capacities, in all walks of life. And the other thing is just, just being a good person learning to be happy, you know, with what you have while you pursue, you know, all that you want. But the mentoring piece is critical. A lot of times I know a lot of business people. I mean, they probably dropped out of school, don't have much of an education, but they clung to somebody or somebody sparked, you know, an interest in them, ignited a passion. And then they, they took it to the next level and, and grew a phenomenal business, raised a family, contributing members to society. So, I mean, the mentorship is, is a key component for the learning for, for, you know, you don't have to make the mistakes and you don't make the mistakes, but they're not as harsh, right? If, if you, if you have someone to take you through it and sometimes just having someone to talk to, you know, a, a hand on the shoulder, someone to converse with, to go through some of the challenges. I mean, it's powerful stuff and it, it keeps me going. You know, when Absolutely. I think of my grandfather on a daily basis, right? How would Skipper Mike handle this? What would he do here? You know, and uh, it, it comes back down to the basics, Shalom. And in our crazy fast-paced world, the Fishing for Reality book, I'll go back to the basics, right? Of, of helping your, your, your fellow human being out as best you can. Of doing the, the little things, taking care of your health. And I, I think that's what it's all about. Learning to be happy and learning to make a contribution to society. And, and you argue uh, in, in the book, and, and I know you speak about it very frequently, that, uh, that we are often our greatest obstacle, but we are our only solution. And, and along those lines, you also talk about how belief precedes performance. Let's talk about that. Certainly, you've, you've experienced that both in life as well as in, you know, in, in your professional career and so on. But let, let's, let's, let's talk practicals over here. I mean, for somebody tuning in, as I mentioned in the intro, we're getting now deeper into 2023. What are, as, as we take a good hard look at ourselves and sort of our performance this year so far, what are some of the things we should be looking for? And what, what mindset can we come in to ensure that we can get out of our own way? That's the key phrase, get out of your own way and, and, and do what you have to do. The second piece and that's what my grandfather instilled in me was a, was a belief in self. You know, the greatest challenge, whether I'm working with kids, whether I'm working with a CEO in, in downtown Toronto or New York, whether I'm working with a single mom, whatever the case may be in a coaching or mentoring program, the greatest challenge of all of us is self-esteem and self-worth. 
and sometimes, you know, you got to push through that. At the end of the day, sometimes that's all you got to hang on to. It's your own belief in your abilities to, to succeed and do what you must do. And I, I, you know, I encourage that strongly, you know, people build on what you're good at, do what you're good at, do more of what you're good at. Don't focus on the weaknesses. Cause that, I mean, that's crushing, right? But if you focus on the fly fishing or things you love to do, skiing, running, sports, art, music, anything outside of, of the realm of business, then you can build up the self-esteem, the self-confidence, apply that then to your business, to your life, to your family. And, it, you know, it, it, it just adds to your happiness. I'm chatting with the author of Fishing for Reality, as well as a contributor to the new book, Tales of the Great Outdoors. And um, we're running out of time. But the last thing that I want to touch on um, before, of course, we get people in touch with you, Paul, is um, about not being a, in a zero defect sort of mentality. Uh, you talk about that, about how we have to seek success and excellence, but not perfection. And that's sometimes a challenge. What practical advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I created this salmon fly. Uh, it, we call it the dirty bomber. It's a, it's a dry fly for salmon fishing. I didn't lose. I didn't know what I had at the time. I started as a young fly tire, no YouTube, nobody to really show you. I just went and did it. And it was ugly. It was rotten. It was messy. I mean, some of my friends can talk, um, or, or can, can basically create these works of art, but I never lost that. And the fish seemed to like it better because it's more fishy looking. It's more natural. And so I tell people, listen, be a dirty bomber, seek the success, go for the results. The perfection will drive you crazy when you're seeking that. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want the results, not the perfection. And so, I mean, there it is, Shalom. You know, when you're going for the happiness, when you're going for the greatness, you can't have the perfection. That's great. Well, I've certainly enjoyed our conversation. Paul Michael White, professional speaker, mental health counselor, teacher, avid fly fisher, and probably the list goes on and on. Um, but I know our listeners will want to pick up a copy of your book, get in touch with you. How can we do that? Yeah, Paul, my name, pretty, pretty simple, paulwhite.ca, P-A-U-L-W-H-I-T-E. Uh, the website is currently being redeveloped. So by the time hopefully this uh, podcast comes out, I'll have my new website up. By all means, reach out if I can help anybody in any capacity. I will. I promise you I will get back to you. I answer all emails, and that is a challenge at times, but I get it done. <laughs> and sure I just want to thank you for uh, inviting me on your show today. Uh, it's an honor to have you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to be right back with more small business jobs and entrepreneurship. But in the meantime, be sure to check out our sponsors, Tom Mirabali, by giving him a call 630-863-3477 or healthplanchicago.com. Indeed, for all of your health insurance and affordable care act needs. Again, we'll be right back. Don't touch the dial. You're listening to Get Down to Business. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business, jobs, and entrepreneurship. I am honored to be joined by a veteran diversity, equity, and inclusion advocate. That's Bertina Ciccarelli, the CEO of Empower, a successful nonprofit committed to helping young adults and military-connected individuals launch tech, tech careers. And Bertina has been on uh, on a mission to create a more inclusive workplace. Uh, Bertina, it's an honor to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's just a delight to be here. Absolutely. So how did you get interested in this field? And tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I really appreciate it. So 
Listen, I feel as though in my own career, I started in the field of, of technology and it provided so many opportunities for me as an individual who came from a bit of a non-traditional background myself. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. I was really fortunate to have a high school social studies teacher who pointed me in a direction that allowed me to get a Pell Grant uh, and fueled my career. And it, those memories of some of those very early experiences, coaching and mentoring and how it helped me has really informed really my life's mission and the work that I do um, every day of the year. Well, thank you so much for doing that. And that's certainly setting the example. And, uh, and that's, that's fantastic. And there's so much that we can learn from you and from your co-author of this fantastic read, Innovating for Diversity. So, uh, Bertina, let's, let's jump right in. With so many companies acknowledging that good diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI practices advance the bottom line um, and are, frankly, important legally and morally, why are we still so far behind? Why are there still such glaring gaps in representation in high growth sectors of our economy? So, you know, that's such a good question and a great place to be, Ken. My co-author, Suzanne Tedrick, who's also the author of Women of Color in Tech, did hundreds of interviews. And what we found in the process, interviewing leaders of both small businesses, um, a number of entrepreneurs, and also leaders of large companies, is the following. Diversity programs tend to fail when they follow a check the box model. Uh, and we see that so many diversity programs are set up for great optics. They're set up to meet compliance uh, uh, parameters, but very few are actually innovating and trying to solve underlying systemic root problems. And we see that the, that the best companies having the best results, not only in their DEI practices, but ultimately in their business outcomes are those that are truly innovating for diversity. Sure. So what are some of those barriers that impede innovation, especially those connected to diversity? So, you know, a couple of things. We find that a lot of companies have an idea of fixed practices and fixed attitudes that are so deeply ingrained in their culture that they become invisible. It might be that they're recruiting uh, new job candidates from the alma mater of maybe the CEO or senior level executives because that's kind of what they've always done, right? And until you really stop to think, uh, what might be some other sources of really strong candidates who look different from the workforce we have today, that until you get over that and identify it as a root problem, you know, can you even begin to solve it? So really thinking intentionally and applying, right, the same lens around problem solving that you would any other business issue. And that's how we think DEI needs to be approached successfully. It is just another business problem to solve. Sure. I'm chatting with Bertina Ciccarelli, who is the subject matter expert, author of uh, some fantastic reads, which we'll certainly send our listeners to. But Bertina, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you're saying because it seems logical. It seems like the right thing to do. It seems like it actually will help with growth. But why are so many DEI efforts failing even when they are well-intentioned? Well, you know, look, I think part of it is cultural. Uh, and part of it is leadership. So if we just start for a moment with culture, it's a recognition that uh, DEI is not the purview of one leader in the company. It's not the purview of just the chief diversity officer or just the head of HR. That really needs to be everybody's responsibility. And one of the things that I was so inspired by in the interviews we did for the book is 
talking to leaders who might be mid-level managers, right? They might be, uh, you know, the head of customer service. They might be somebody who runs uh, a division of cloud computing at a, at a bank. Uh, it might be a small business uh, uh, owner who has said, you know what? I want to try something different and building the types of coalitions across the organization, starting small, piloting a new idea, perhaps it's an apprenticeship program, or it's a deeper way of mentoring uh, new individuals into the organization. And out of that comes a set of practices that could be operationalized, but it takes the really motivated, sometimes mid-level managers to make that happen. So lesson number one, this cannot be just one person's responsibility. Second, I would say the person at the very top needs to genuinely believe this is going to help advance the results of his or her business. So that starts with the CEO, and it can't just be a big public proclamation to say these are some bold numbers we're going to reach, but it is filtering that information all the way through the organization and setting accountable metrics uh, and operationalizing some processes and setting up some reward systems. So again, it becomes part of the culture and the expectation. Indeed, and you've touched on so many important topics, which I'd love to spend so much more time on talking about mentorship, talking about apprenticeship and so on. Um, but you mentioned the word small, and indeed many of our listeners are small business owners, entrepreneurs. What kind of additional challenges do you see some of those folks that might be tuning into this program facing when it comes to implementing DEI and how can they overcome it? Well, you know, one of the case studies we feature is um, the founder of Online Optimism, which is a small advertising agency uh, headquartered in New Orleans. And, you know, he approached it as a business imperative from day one of launching his agency uh, he said, I need to reach into the community uh, that we're in, New Orleans, and identify some of the brightest talent. And these may be individuals for whom advertising as a profession is not their first inclination as a career. So he started with painted a picture for what a, a world in advertising looks like. Um, uh, motivating new candidates to apply, and then a fantastic training program uh, to get candidates that, uh, you know, black and brown professionals um, who are desperately underrepresented in the advertising sector. And as a result, he could be far more attuned to the needs of his clients, some of whom represent were uh, uh, companies um, that were uh, supporting, right? individuals within the community with products and services that otherwise he would not have been able to reach, right? So it was a, it was a way of uh, expanding his business and doing a better job once he landed new business in minority communities to succeed. Thanks so much, Martina. Um, definitely, uh, I have learned a lot in terms of how small businesses can uh, can accomplish. I'm optimistic that there is a, a way forward. We've talked about the business side of things. I want to talk about the employee side of things and us as individuals. How can we, as leaders in our community, propel um, diverse, uh, equ equitable, and inclusive organizations within our community and within our workplaces as well? Yeah, you know, I think that's that's exactly the the right question to to ask, and you know, probably a great place to end because all of this could take some action. 
And, you know, one of the things that I, I so enjoyed about the process of writing this book is meeting those leaders who actually did make it happen. And it's a matter of taking a look at um, some of those areas of your company that might be the least suspecting, uh, uh, the least suspecting uh, areas for growth in DEI. And I say that because I think what we come up against um, across our society today is diversity and equity and inclusion feeling as though it is a zero sum game. But as leaders, all of us, what we can do is recognize DEI as a growth mindset, that the more opportunities that we provide within our companies, our organizations and our communities, everybody grows and our business grows as well. And you know, I think one of the best case studies um, that features that idea mm -hmm. is with the National Hockey League that you'll find in the book. Sure. And, and as we know, the National Hockey League has sort of fought against the, the idea that it really has been a predominantly white sport sure. in terms of its fan base, its player uh, community. And recognizing for it to grow, it needs to dramatically. Well, Bertine, I, I want to make sure we don't share all the secrets of the book. We want to get people over to an innovating for diversity. What's the best website where people can get in touch with you and pick up a copy of the read? So that would be innovatingfordiversity.com. But you could also find the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Target, and your favorite bookseller. Fantastic, Bertina Ciccarelli. Thank you so much for joining us and for educating us on this important topic. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Awesome. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Travis Perry, who was once a workaholic type financial advisor who had a dawning light of awareness come over him and he knew he'd have to change or he'd be shortchanging his family of, listen to this, seven kids and wife and his well-being. Uh, it's an honor to have you, uh, Dr. Perry. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I know you've got a uh, new book coming out uh, sometime very, very soon. You've had uh, Achieving Balance, um, which is something we all need to do. So Travis, what, what was that aha moment like? Um, when did you discover that something needs to change and uh, you need to start living life on purpose? You know, I was 26 years old. I was a a financial advisor starting my own practice and you know they they tell you you got to work nights and weekends to make the business work for the first five ten years and then and then it's great um the problem is I, I saw a lot of my compadres falling into this what i call the workaholic trap and i was finding myself there too kind of slowly sliding into these workaholism problems so uh, by by honest uh, to goodness, just an, an incredible experience that was both devastating and amazing. My father, uh, 49 years old, he was two weeks away from his 50th birthday. We were planning his 50th birthday surprise party, suddenly passed away. Now, um, he was an avid mountain biker, cyclist, um, very athletic and, uh, you know, fit. But he had what was called the Widowmaker. And that's when one of your four art main arteries to your heart is clogged, at least. And you don't know about it. And he didn't. It was about 90% clogged. And he died literally in an instant, even though his one of his best friends, it was an EMT, was riding with him, tried to resuscitate him for about 30 minutes before medical personnel could arrive. It was very tragic. And, you know, I still miss my dad to this day. He was a fantastic dad, though. 
And I really want to focus on how great of a person he was because at 26, I didn't feel I was on that same path. I didn't feel that I was healthy. I didn't feel like my relationships with my family were very strong or with God were very strong. Um, I felt like I was kind of slipping away and letting my work control who I was. And at that moment, during those few weeks I was with my family, I had experience after experience that said, you know, Travis, you need to change your life. You need to find better balance. And I was so grateful that I listened to that, followed that experience, and now I'm helping others to do the same. You sure are. And one of the uh, very inspirational uh, lines that I know you use frequently, and it's all over on your website, which we'll send our listeners to, is we don't manage time, we make time to achieve our goals. So you've written a lot, you speak a lot, um, and people will see that on your website. But what are some of the practical tips and advice that you have for the entrepreneurs, the small business owners that are tuning in, especially as we move into Q2 of 2023? How can we make that time to achieve our goals, both personal and professional, frankly. Yeah, for sure. So there are three main myths. One is that uh, we can somehow do everything at the same time. We need to understand we absolutely cannot, and we shouldn't be multitasking our life. So we should be focused, present, and really understand what are our highest priorities. If we're at work, what's our highest priorities at work? If we're at home, what are our highest priorities there? and make the time for it. That's where Make Time Institute gets its name because I was kind of forced like, hey, come up with a name for your company. Like, I don't know. We just make time for stuff. So it's Make Time Institute. And you're right. It's all over the website. We make time for our highest priorities in life. And I found that to be the secret to balance. Two is that, oh, okay, so we are making time and we're productive, but productivity is not the uh, magic pill per se. Because I found as I was training people, even if they're really super productive, if they don't have boundaries built in, they don't have goals outside of work, they will tend to become what I call a productive workaholic and continue to work and work. <laughs> they're just going to be more productive at it. So in case uh, you know, you're thinking, well, I can just be productive, that's going to solve it. Unless you have an ideal calendar for every area of your life and you have worth, worthwhile endeavors outside of your nine to five you know, career, job, you're not going to want to leave. You're not going to care about life outside. I love to snowboard, mountain bike, surf, hang out with my family, serve in my church, play music. Like there are things outside of work that light me up more than even working with my clients, although I do love it. And, <laughs> and I hear that every day. Uh, but third, uh, I, I find that as I set people up on, the, on these systems, they have a time management system. They're focused on their, you know, making time for their highest priorities. They tend to try to do this alone. Do not do it alone. Have an accountability partner. And I found the number one best accountability partner is your spouse if you're married. So involve them. Yeah. Again, I'm, I've been chatting with uh, work-life balance expert, Dr. Travis Perry. And uh, I knew if there was one person that I could have on for a few minutes and pack a punch, I knew it would be you, Travis. And um, I know you work with all sorts of folks, including the, the kinds of people that you were, that, you know, the financial professional, but you work with business owners of all kinds using your make time model. So Travis, I, I'm inspired by our conversation. I look forward to having you back on. Um, but what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you and pick up a copy of your book, both past and upcoming? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Travis Perry. 
you know, uh, the, the best thing to do is go to our website, balancegrowthbook.com. And that's where you can actually uh, get on our list to get our next book called Balance Growth, how to scale your business without losing your balance. And of course, I'm happy to follow up with you there and stay in touch with you on everything Balance Growth. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Travis Perry. Welcome back to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. I've got a real treat for you. I've got Dr. Beth Fisher Yoshida, who is a global expert and educator in intercultural negotiation and communication. She's the program director for Columbia University's Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution, a negotiation consultant for the United Nations, and the CEO of her consulting agency, Fisher Yoshida International. Um, and uh, she has a new book, New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation, which uh, just came out. Uh, Beth, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to have a good conversation. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. Uh, I'm curious how you became interested in the topic of women and negotiation. What an interesting subject. <laughs> Thank you. So it sort of evolved organically is that I do a lot of work in negotiation, conflict resolution or organizational conflict and so on. And I started to notice certain patterns that women had when they were negotiating or approaching negotiation or even thinking about a negotiation. So I was curious. So I checked the existing literature and the research that was on it. And I noticed that there were a lot of contradictory messages. I thought, well, I don't only want to know the challenges that women are facing. I also want to know what women are actually doing, what strategies and tactics they're using. So I conducted some of my own research. I interviewed hundreds of women, including a focused study on women in the STEM professions to find out what are, what are they using. So I interviewed segments of women who were junior in their career, mid-career or senior in their career. And I noticed certain patterns across the different segments. That's how I got interested in it. <laughs> well, interest, uh, interested indeed, because now you are uh, the subject matter expert on the topic. And uh, I know your new book, again, it's called New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. It is really the guide helping women of all ages make successful negotiations a reality. And you have quite an impressive client list, including Fortune 100 companies, nonprofits, military and security forces, and the list goes on and on. So what are some of those key findings from your research, Beth? Well, what I found was that there are different stories that women carry. And where do these stories come from? Well, they come from the society that we live in, wherever they were raised, cultural influences, family, education, communities, and so on. And these stories, I mean, it's the responsibility of our communities and families and education to shape us so that we are positive contributors to society. So we carry these stories with us. And unless we pay close attention, we don't even realize these stories are in play and that they influence our behavior. So these particular stories we carry also influence how we even think about and approach negotiation. So for example, a woman might be taught, well, women are supposed to be nice, they're nurturers, they're caretakers, and so on. But when you enter into a negotiation, that's conflicting with your desire to get a certain outcome that you want if you feel that you're not going to be liked or not taking care of the other person you're negotiating with. Wow. So what have you noticed in coaching women on their negotiations? What, what feedback do you receive? And, and I guess are, are some of these women that you work with uh, self-aware in terms of some of the trends that you just, uh, you just mentioned? 
I guess people are all over the place in terms of how self-aware they are. And I think self-awareness is a lifelong process because you can always learn something new. I find that when women are shown to reflect on their own story and how it is influencing their behavior, that they get to select, well, is this working for me or not? And if it is, great, I'm going to do something to grow it. And if it's not working for me, I need to change it. So I teach them certain kinds of techniques, using certain kinds of tools, giving them feedback. And I think the whole idea is that when you have skills, because you're using tools to give you that ability, and then you get that feedback and you get the practice and then you have positive outcomes, even just showing up can be a positive outcome, that you build confidence and you have a stronger sense of agency and being able to shape your negotiation destiny. So we've we've used uh, negotiation quite a bit already in this conversation. And uh, again, as we continue our conversation with Beth Fisher, Fisher Yoshida, I know we're going to continue talking more about it. But what is the importance of negotiation, especially for our small business owners, entrepreneurs that might be tuning in? Why would somebody want to read your book and actually improve their negotiation skills? Well, in some ways, you can think that life is a negotiation, right? We're constantly negotiating with ourselves, with others around us. It could be small end negotiation, which is just an everyday kind of occurrence, or big end negotiation where there's a really big contract that you're negotiating or some kind of a deal. And so it's important because instead of just using what some people call a strategy of winging it, which I say is not a strategy, then you really can make a difference because if you know a little bit more about what you're doing, then you're just going to do it better. And that's the importance because negotiation is just another kind of relationship building opportunity. It's an interaction. It's a communication. So wouldn't we want to do that better to get better outcomes for us and for the other party? I, my big takeaway in this conversation is life is a negotiation. Um, but uh, indeed, uh, I could I could certainly relate to that. So, Beth, we're going to have to take a quick break in just a moment. But um, what can folks expect if they pick up a copy of your book? What are some of the what are some of the highlights? I don't want to share all the secrets, but uh, what are some of the big big takeaways? I think one of the big takeaways is that it's a very practically oriented book that you can pick it up, turn to different chapters, and take something away and use it immediately. There are specific chapters based on the tools and how to prepare, how to engage in the process of the negotiation, and also importantly, how to follow up the post-negotiation. There are case studies that show how these tools are being used. So again, it's very practical. You can read it from cover to cover, or you can just jump around inside of the book as well. Again, I'm chatting with Dr. Beth Fisher, Yoshida, a global expert and an educator in intercultural negotiation and communication, program director of Columbia University's Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution, a negotiation consultant for the United Nations, and the list goes on and on, is the CEO of the consulting agency, Fisher Yoshida International. We're going to squeeze in a very quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the role that gender plays in negotiation. But you're listening to Get Down to Business, the show all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. Get on my website, shawlincline.com. And one of the best things that you could do is get on your favorite podcast app, subscribe, rate, review, and share um, all of the past 10 plus years of shows. Again, a quick break. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Get Down to Business. I'm continuing my conversation with the author of New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. That's Dr. Beth Fisher Yoshida. Um, Beth, welcome back. And, um, you know, the very premise of, uh, of the title of the book, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. 
How much of a role does gender play in negotiations? Well, thank you for asking that question. You know, and there's no one blanket answer except the fact that gender does play a role because we're all acculturated into our gender. If we think of gender as a type of culture, and it doesn't mean everybody's acculturated exactly the same way, but there are overarching messages about what women should do, what men should do, depending on the different culture. Like, for example, I lived in Japan for many years. The role of women and men are more clearly defined than they are in the U.S. and a little bit more narrowly defined because here we have a broader scope because of all the different types of people that we have. So I think it does play a role because you carry those social stories with you about what a good woman or a good man does and then how that shows up in your negotiation. So certainly uh, gender plays a role and obviously you've dedicated your life and your career to, uh, to helping to, uh, to craft that. And I certainly don't want to divulge um, any, of, uh, any of your clients, um, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, are, are all things created equal? When you talk about some of your clients that I know uh, include uh, Fortune 100 companies and, and military and security forces, are the very principles of negotiation the same? Yes and no, which is probably not the answer you want to, but yes and no. Because, you know, people are people and we all have our challenges. And regardless of the context that we put them into, we still bring who we are to that particular context. So the actual types of issues may be different, but our behaviors, our personalities, our skill sets all show up in the same way. So there are some unique aspects, but a lot of times I can do a little bit more general negotiation work with people and then specialize it depending on the person and the issues, the context, and then the risks that are involved. Oh, wow. So uh, as I've been saying throughout this program, um, we're airing this episode in the beginning of Q2 of 2023, which means we are now uh, certainly deep into the new year. It's no longer appropriate to say Happy New Year at this point. Um, and that means we all should be uh, aiming for uh, for betterment in our personal lives and our professional lives. So what is one key factor, Beth, um, for success in negotiation that that our listeners can take to the bank and put to work immediately? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is really being self-aware and self-aware in general about who you are, what makes you who you are, what's important to your values and so on, which is constant life work, as I mentioned earlier. The other piece would be that how you show up in a negotiation is not always the same because who you're negotiating with, what the context is and what the issues are that you're negotiating differ. So you want to understand which aspects of me are really important in this particular negotiation with this particular person. And that's why self-awareness and preparation are critical to a successful negotiation, I think. Okay, absolutely. Well, I know everybody must be nodding their heads vigorously because people can relate to that. And uh, I want to make sure our listeners know where they can get in touch with you as well as pick up a copy of the book. It's called New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. Um, Beth, what's the best way for us to reach you? So I have a website, bethfisheryoshida.com. It's one word. And then I'm also at Columbia University. I can be reached there. And I have to say, I'm really not that hard to find. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. So if you look a little bit, you'll find me. Uh, so it doesn't require a negotiation to get a response. That's that's <laughs> certainly a good thing. Uh, again, I've been chatting with Dr. Beth Fisher Yoshida, uh, bethfisheryoshida.com. We'll link through our show notes as well. Um, but definitely pick up a copy of the book, New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. That's a wrap for us here this week on the show, all about small business jobs and entrepreneurship. As always, you get on my website, shalomkline.com, or subscribe, rate, review, and share on your favorite 
podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Um, we've got a great lineup of uh, guests in store for the upcoming weeks. So make sure you subscribe to the, uh, the show notifications on my website, again, shalomkline.com. Uh, but to success, let's get down to business. Have a great week ahead. We'll talk to you next Sunday right here on AM 560, The Answer.